Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guests are Ellen Chen and Mario Del Perro, founders of the California restaurant chain Mendocino Farms. In this episode, Ellen and Mario discuss the many changes eateries like theirs were forced to undergo over the past year, including shifting a huge percentage of their business off-premise. For Mendocino Farms, or Mendo as they call it, this meant leaning heavily into both technological innovation and a defined employee culture and set of core values, the latter of which proving especially challenging given the stop-start nature of local public health guidelines. It should also be noted that Ellen, a Taiwanese immigrant, and Mario, a Northern California agriculturalist, are married with kids, and it is both entertaining and quite inspiring to listen to them explain how their partnership has been so fruitful, relying on at times a very disparate set of strengths to achieve success, which for them meant evolving Mendo from its early days as an urban gastropub into today's bright suburban family oasis. The story of Mendocino Farms, told by the husband and wife who created it. This is The Supporting Cast. Ellen Chen and Mario Del Perro, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thanks, Eli. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. So first, I want to kind of start with kind of how you were doing. You guys are parents. You guys are business owners. I guess before going into what the past year has meant for Mendocino Farms, which I'm sure has been quite a ride, which we can get into, how are you guys doing personally? You know what? It's been interesting because 2020 was a transition year for both Mario and I as well, because we actually transitioned at the day-to-day of Mendocino Farms. Ah, okay. And so in that way, it was just like, you know, from a life change perspective, you know, that we, we were facing that. But I will have to say the silver lining in being able to now focus being at home, those kids, it's something that I never got the opportunity to do when we mm. were working. So I will have to say, as horrible as the pandemic has had on so many people's lives, businesses, I, I found a lot of appreciation for actually being able to focus on my kids and my family, our relationship for the first time and just having things slow down. Yeah. And then having the opportunity to kind of reinvent and recreate kind of a new chapter in my life without all the crazy things that usually happen uh, with the day to day. So, you know, it's, it was a blessing in certain ways. Yeah. I, I would kind of pile on in the fact that you know, silver lining is is what what a great opportunity to reflect. And as founders, I think there's always this struggle with finding balance. And um, and the yeah. pandemic, you know, has really caused you to create real cadence and to try to seek out some of that balance and, and to remind you kind of the things that are most important, which is your kids. And um, I actually don't think our dogs have gotten so much love in their entire lives. I don't know how they're going to fare post pandemic. <laughs> you know, that, that's been the upside. Now, you know, of course, on the downside is this is the most painful period in the history of the restaurant space that, that 
we'll have ever seen in our lives and hopefully ever again. But it's it's been a real difficult time, you know, for the restaurant space. And, and obviously our heart breaks for a lot of our um, fellow founders, a lot of our friends, a lot of our teammates, and then um, and then people in the industry. So it's been a painful, painful time. Well, I, and I understand it's been maybe positive on the home front, painful on the professional front, but also I, I imagine a lot of adaptation. Um, you said you had stepped away from sort of the day-to-day this past year, but I imagine you are still very tuned in to all of the changes that your restaurants were having to undergo. I live within walking distance, as I mentioned, to Mendocino Farms and go there often. Can you kind of take us through having to close down, then having to reopen, but without any indoor dining, then you could do outdoor dining, then you had to close again, then you could only do takeout. Can you just take us through what all of those cycles were, how you dealt with them, how you had to sort of grow and change over the last year? I think out of the gate, a lot of concepts, particularly in that fast casual, premium fast casual, I mean, for that matter, anyone with a drive-through, right? But places that already had like well-established patios and well-established off-premise capabilities have, Mm. of course, you know, fared so much better than, you know, we're investors in some full service restaurants as well as we, you know, we, we own one that was lost during the pandemic. But the, the idea of, you know, having to all of a sudden lose almost all of your dining room to only have a patio as a full service restaurant right? And we all talk about covers and, you know, we've done the math on, on what those seat turns are to have to totally change the math and just go into survival mode and then to have it then completely gone and go from a business. If you're a full service restaurant, maybe doing 5% off premise prior to the pandemic to having to totally build new muscles, actually learn how to package what actually travels and how to do that is has been nothing more than a massive, massive uphill battle for for so many um, players in that space. Obviously, the Mendocino Farms of the world, you know, we were already doing almost 40% off-premise. We already really understood our packaging. We were already really designed for it. So, Hmm. you know, coming out of this, there's definitely been some new lessons on labor modeling and things that would bore anyone. But if anything, if a big takeaway was, for anyone in in kind of the restaurant spaces, all these new muscles that have been built by the consumers, we have a new landscape. And and those that are actually able to fulfill these kind of new muscles, like people's willingness to get things off premise, blurring the lines between grocery and restaurant, right? And then for the last piece, I think that is really resonating with a lot of consumers is this idea of food that's better for you but still tastes great. And I think these are three really big trends that I know Mendocino Farms well positioned to be successful with, but I see a lot of our peers and even places that were full service building a lot of these new muscles. It's a really exciting time coming out of this. It's been interesting too. I think uh, in the restaurant business, technology was never a main focus for building an infrastructure. And what the pandemic brought to us was how important it was to leverage technology so that you could, you know, to what Mario was talking about with off-premise, labor modeling, all these different things, how you could become more efficient by using tools that the technology that's out there, online ordering, apps. We had to fast forward our roadmap 
with things that we were looking at 2021, 2023, and we literally had to fast forward that into literally within the first three months of the pandemic to try to figure out how to pivot the business. As much as we were off premise, a lot of it was done through the phone. A lot of it was done still with people walking into the store and ordering. But now it's really how do we do this all through technology so that it helps the guests and it helps our team members. And so I think to a lot of these businesses from fast food, fast casual to casual dining, fine dining, they really had to start looking at what are those technology platforms that they need to implement today and then really for the future as well. Because I do believe convenience is here to stay. People are, we're used to now a certain way of dining and that's just kind of the wave of the future, I think. There's now technology where it's, we had curbside, but it was very clunky where you had to call to order. When you get there, you call to order again. And we actually implemented, we had been testing the technology of it being where the minute you hit the parking lot, the food, like we would know, and we just run it out to you. And we had to fast forward that right away. And you're seeing this technology being used now. It's almost like a must have. You know, and there people are calling it their the drive-through or their virtual drive-through or their drive-through lanes. So everyone's trying to figure out how do you use technology to really enhance that experience with however the guest wants to get your food. Well, and I'm curious about you mentioned Mario the math around you have this limited outdoor space. You can only have you know a fraction of the amount of tables that you were serving prior. And I'm curious about the human piece of your own staff and having to adapt to maybe having fewer employees. Maybe the math works out where you have to let some people go. Then suddenly when you come back after being shut down, you have to hire them back again. Can you talk a little bit about the challenge of dealing with, you know, the food and beverage industry is a very human industry, not only the customers, but mm-hmm. your employees. Can you talk, talk to that challenge? Yeah. I mean, even to back it up a little bit, I would argue that most people that have had any level of success, you know, in the restaurant space would probably lean into the kind of the phrase that, you know, that we're really in the people business, not the food business and how important it is to to really have a a culture that lives on a day-to-day basis with the entire team. And if there's anything that, you know, I think that Ellen and I might've, you know, helped in the early years with Mendo that, resonates the most is, is we were very, I guess, mindful about trying to build a really strong culture. And we always say that kind of our values become our filters. When you really do say that, you know, that our people are our greatest asset, not our customers, but, but our team members, then that becomes one of the filters on your approach to how you either have people furloughed or if you have to let people go to rehire, how quickly you bring them back, how you actually treat them when they're in the stores. I mean, you know, the fact that our team members have, have shown up and, and had to like carry on that job in a setting where, you know, we've had to keep them distinctly apart. So that means you have to work more spots and you have to do more and very well under still pretty large volumes. It's been a Herculean act for so many of them. But again, you know, it goes back to, I think the best in class restaurant groups that are really trying to build things that are here to last are constantly asking themselves, how can we do the right thing for the team member? And inevitably the team member will do the right thing for the guests. So without getting into the total specifics coming out of this, you really show your true colors. You know, anyone, when things are great, can be great to the people around them, heck, to even their spouse, right? But it's truly in the tough times that 
people are um, are weighed and judged and and how you behave in those times. And um, I'm very proud of the leadership team, you know, at Mendo and how they behaved. And I'm humble. I'm even more proud of the team members. And it goes to not just the the team, but because you guys have stepped away from day to day and you have so many different restaurants around Los Angeles to try to maintain consistency of that culture, but, you know, means you need good management within those restaurants. You need good sort of middle management between those restaurants. I, I think it's interesting because this is a time with honesty and transparency is key. And that, you know, to what Mario was saying, even prior to the pandemic, that is one of the things we value is just being completely transparent to our team member with anything that's going on. And especially during the pandemic, sharing with them, this is what's happening. This could be what's happening. And just sharing every variation that might be coming down the pipe instead of just one road, because to your point, one day you could be open, the next day you're closed. You know, I, I think it's, it's our, our executives, our directors have all been very thoughtful in that process and really having that empathy for our team member and going, hey, I know this is what, how you're feeling. I know you're scared. We are too. And we're here as a family to help. Yeah. Eli, can I can I jump in on as far as you know for for people that are growing startups, it's so unbelievably critical to have established and operationalized your values. So as they come from these other organizations with with great best in class skill sets, they understand how to apply them within the the Mendo culture. And if you don't have a strong culture, if you don't have it operationalized so it lives on a daily basis through certain rituals and a way of speaking, you very well could have your culture watered down as you add all these additional people, mm -hmm. right? One of the things that, you know, we look back and got great mentorship from some far bigger businesses, you know, Whole Foods being one of them, was uh, this idea of how to, how to have your values live in the organization on a daily basis. Ritz Carlton actually was also a huge, huge influence in, in how Mendo learned how to operationalize its values. It's a lot of how we think about it in a school. You know, the school has a mission statement. How do we live our values mm -hmm. as a school? And when the mission statement was rewritten several years ago, we had a lot of conversations about not just talking about it, but how does it live in every area of the campus and in, in admission and athletics, uh, within the arts, within advancement, within uh, every area of the school. So, so now I want to get to kind of you two. This is the first time, by the way, on the supporting cast, we've had two guests at once. So we're, we went through some technical difficulty at the beginning, and now we're asking questions of both of you, but you've been doing a great job going back and forth. So I guess I'll start with Ellen. Where did you grow up? So actually, I was born in Taiwan, and I immigrated here in uh, 77. And I grew up, we immigrated over to Northern California in a little town called Moraga in the East Bay. So we moved eventually to the town next to us called Lafayette and grew up in NorCal and then um, went to UC San Diego for college and then landed in Los Angeles after I graduated all the way in 95. And I've been here since. Got it. And what about you, Mario? Yeah. So I grew up in a really uh, small agricultural town north of Sacramento. It's actually the twin cities. It's called Yuba City and Marysville. If you're going through Yuba City, you, you would only know because there was one stoplight to slow you down. My background was that my family has been in the meat industry for over 80 years, three generations. My great-grandfather was able to send all of his uh, sons 
to get a good education. They all came back from Berkeley. And I think that's kind of the trend of they were very nerdy in what was not known as a very nerdy industry. And it really allowed them a lot of opportunity for innovation. And they were the first to do a lot of things in, in the, in the meatpacking space. My dad later earned a right to run it. And then in the 80s, as I was just finishing up high school, I think they assessed my inability to pass the company off and they sold it to uh, Cargill. No, I'm joking. Hopefully it wasn't. I had nothing to do with it. But a couple of the big takeaways, as much as they wanted me to go on and do other professions, was I really was caught up in this love for sharing with people hospitality I would call them Italian-American, but I've learned that they're very Taiwanese-American. <laughs> but just being so hospitable and how good that feels to be a good host um, and to be able to be paid for it. And then the second thing that, you know, that I took away from watching my family was um, you can do something that seems like a very ordinary industry and still really do extraordinary work. And they were very innovative-minded, always through new equipment or new food items and you know, that's something that's kept both Ellen and I very interested is to kind of be on that cutting edge of spaces that you think are somewhat mundane, but have been fascinating to be part of that vanguard of doing new things in, in our space. I mean, just to add to that, and sorry, I gave you a very succinct like answer to your oh, question okay. earlier. I think, you know, to what Mario was saying, my father was an entrepreneur and um, it's interesting. He grew up very, very poor and he had the opportunity to go to a university in, in Japan and was able to find, you know, we talk about mentors. He, he was able to find a mentor when he graduated to help him start his new company. He got into the manufacturing business. He came back, built a factory in Taiwan. It was so interesting as a child because my dad, as I said, we immigrated here in 77. He would come here for a month and then he'd go back to work for a month. And then the summers, we would spend the summers in Taiwan with him. And having that opportunity to see how hard my dad worked to build this company from nothing to a million dollar company, you know, over the course of just our childhood. The one thing that I took away from it was the importance for him to create a livelihood for his employees. And these were employees that were blueberry blue collar, didn't have an education and how much pride he took in taking care of them and making sure that they were taken care of and they could take care of their families. And so that it just instilled in me somewhere in the back of my head that I knew that one day I'd love to be able to build something. And I, at that point, I didn't know what it was going to be. I just knew that wherever my career took me, that I would want to do something where I could give back to the communities and really provide a livelihood for team members to have more than just a paycheck, but something that they could call like something they love to do in a career. So it sounds like you both had really strong family influences, you, Ellen, in manufacturing and you, Mario, in a sort of agriculture and meat. So how did you guys meet? Where did you guys connect? Was it in Los Angeles? Yeah, it was in Los Angeles. Mario actually already had a restaurant. He had started a fast casual teriyaki concept. And uh, one of his restaurants was in the base of a sky rise in downtown LA. And at that time, one of my friends was working in the surrounding area and told me that there was this great restaurant. She loved going there, but what she loved more was this really good looking guy. Mario was good looking, but he had a manager who was also very good looking <laughs> and she loved going in there. So, I thought you were going to say Mario, but no, it wasn't Mario. It was the... I, I kind of did 
knew, but I knew actually how the story went. So uh, yes. But thank God it wasn't Mario. He's fantastically more handsome than me. Um, a very, very good looking man. I can admit that. So she had, she had introduced us um, because she needed a wing woman. I don't know if this appropriate for eight. It's fine. It's fine. She needed a wing woman. So I came along and that's how we met. You know, admit, admittedly though, Eli, uh, you, know, you kind of tapped into it, finding partners that complement what you do. So I, you know, I, I always say that I was in, that I owned a restaurant. I didn't actually get into the restaurant business until Ellen became my partner. He's such a thought leader, had so much discipline, areas that I was weaker on. She was either strong or got strong. So much of you know, the success is, is really finding two people that can continue to show up every day and complement uh, what the other does. And there's plenty of things we cross over on, but, um, but that would be you know, the big takeaway for, for anyone that's out there is, is seek out whether you give them equity or you surround yourself, but make sure that you have people that complement you and you're not all cut from exactly the, you know, the same area of strengths. Well, I'm curious, what are those areas? So what are the areas where Mario, you bring, what, what do you bring to Mendo? If I'm walking in or if I'm looking at a balance sheet or whatever it is, if I'm assessing Mendocino Farms, like what are the things, Mario, you feel like your imprint is more on what are the things that Ellen brings that makes it successful? Why don't we make it fun? I could do Ellen. Ellen, do you want to do me? God. Perfect. And just, to, just to shake it up. Perfect. How about? Let's, let's shake it up. Ellen, I would prefer if you went first. <laughs> do you see how this works, Eli? It's amazing. I'm loving this. It's amazing. I feel like I'm walking into a landmine right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, honestly, well, first and foremost. He's so good looking. I think that's the first thing you should probably He do. is so good looking. And that is very important. He really is good looking as that other guy. But yeah. <laughs> so much more successful. And he's got humor too, Mario. Um you know, the imprint that you're talking about, it's what you taste every day when you walk into a Mendo. Mm -hmm. and, you know, Mario is the culinary genius, right, behind Mendo. He is not classically trained, but he's got an amazing palate and has an amazing vision for kind of what the food landscape should look like, not just today, but kind of future state as well. And I think that's the one thing that has really kept Mendo apart is the food. And kind of us being these forward thinkers of how people want to eat and should be eating. So that's first and foremost. He's also super creative in terms of just, you know, even with the design, you know, we, we design all the stores together. You know, he's got this really interesting left and right way of looking at things. And operationally, too, in the kitchen, efficiency, you know, Mario grew up in the business. And so I think it's just somewhat in his DNA with how he thinks. I think that's one of the things we geeked on when we first met was I was a consultant and I was in a corporate kind of technology world. And I just loved seeing how things uh, work and how you could actually use certain things to become more efficient. And so that application made a lot of sense in the restaurant industry. And, you know, we just really connected over that. But, you know, the culinary wise, I mean, Mario really is amazing in terms of what we've done at Mendo. Look, you know, and Ellen does not get nearly the amount of credit for, for truly being the person that ran uh, Mendocino Farms. You know, in all intents and purposes, she's truly been the CEO in areas that she didn't know, nor even maybe necessarily wanted to be an expert. Um, she went and sought out and became an expert in areas, but truly has, has continued to be kind of the architect 
of how to scale um, and how to do it in a way that, that is within budgets. And then she doesn't give herself nearly the credit. All the marketing, everything that you feel that makes Mendocino Farms, if it does make you feel warm and fuzzy or connected to the brand or really giving the brand soul, Ellen's been, you know, the thought leader. If we were playing jazz, I might come in every once in a while with a quick little riff. She's the one out in front actually really playing, you know, the music. I just come in and do a little tambourine here and there. It's really been um, her gig. And and guess what? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at tambourine. But, you know, if, if I was just playing tambourine, it, it'd be a really sad uh, performance. <laughs> And she's building that whole band, you know, around the thing. So if people that are hyper creative, you know, and Ella still is very creative, but you definitely want to partner with people that have real discipline and, and have that high level of business acumen because you're running a business and there needs to be an ROI and there needs to be budgets and they need to be adhered to. But you definitely want to have a partner like Ellen that is creative to ask still the hard questions of like, I know this has never been done, but let's convince each other that we can get there. And that's that's kind of next level. And that's what I've been blessed with through the last 20 years of business. Sorry. And I'm going to say one more thing about what Mari brings to the table. And it's kind of the invisible. It's you know in the subconscious. And we talk about culture and we talk about how the brand makes you feel, not just visually. You know, Mario, and he could talk about it a little bit more, but leadership and how to create that culture. I mean, he's a real champion behind it. And that's why we are who we are. I think it's we're more than just, you know, we see it in the t-shirts. It says more than a sandwich. We truly are more than a sandwich because our product is selling happy and it's not just food. As kumbaya and possibly easy as it sounds, it's actually very difficult as you start to scale and grow. I mean, there really needs to be a process and a lot of training involved in it. And he really was the architect of that from the very beginning until, you know, we brought in obviously an amazing team of people to help us continue to bring that to life. Thank you for that. And, and I want to get to some of the mentors. I know Mario had someone at USC and you had some other folks at the early party career, but I want to hang on this kind of partnership, uh, this marital partnership for just w- one moment longer. Spouses can get annoyed with one another sometimes, uh, aside from working together, there can be issues with kids and with pets and with stuff that needs to be fixed in the house. And, all these things happen from time to time. Stresses can occur within any marriage or any family. Kind of how do you guys both work together as spouses with kids and as business partners? How do you try to kind of walk that line or do you not walk that line and it's all just kind of interspersed all the time? Uh, you know, I think it's interesting. I don't know if we walk the line well in the beginning. It was. There's always a learning curve in everything. I think we were young. We didn't know what we were kind of jumping into. But as time went on, I think one of the most important things that we learned is to create certain lanes for yourself so that you guys kind of know what you're responsible for and you don't step on each other's toes. But that took us a while. And the other one is just the balance. Mario is so much better at this and had to squash me wanting to talk, like I call it after hours, Mm. but you know, after we leave the office about work, because it is so hard to have that line. Cause there are times where people like, well, you should know you guys are married. And you know, honestly, like Mario and I would not talk all day long because we're working on separate things. We have different groups that report to us. And so the common 
place for me was to come home and then talk to him about work when he's like, whoa, I've had enough. Like, you need to stop this. So, you know, he he's much better at it than I am. But I don't think there's a there, there's some magic recipe that I could be able to give to someone or advice except for make sure that you guys eventually figure out what areas you own, what areas you like to play in. This is home and work professionally so that you can really support each other. Yeah, if I was to add, our kids are probably pretty messed up going to a restaurant because they've listened to their parents break down every restaurant that they eat at every single time. So they already have built a muscle that probably could weird out any future spouse or friend. No, you know, look, there's also some benefits. The mere fact that we would either travel together with all the travel of opening new restaurants and new markets. So there wasn't that disconnect of where, where is that spouse, you know, and what they're doing. And then as our company got bigger, oftentimes we were traveling separate, either one of us. And when our kids asked, like, where's mom? I actually know exactly where mom is because I'm on the, I might be on the actual email or text chain of exactly what mom's doing in Dallas, Texas, right? You know, we were, we were probably able to put in more hours than, than a, would have bared a lot of young couples just starting out because we absolutely knew where the other one was if we weren't actually with them. And so there were some benefits to it as well. Yeah. And you can actually commiserate when you're going through a really hard time. You guys can actually both know what it feels like. I think it's tough. I, I, you know, with some of my married friends where I know, you know, they're like, he's having a hard time at work or she's having a hard time at work, but you don't really know what that feels like. And I'll have to say it's through some of the hard times. It was so nice to have like your best friend and your partner and your husband going through that same. And even on the highs to be able to celebrate together and really know what that feels like. It's not something that most people experience. And I, I think we've been really fortunate to have that. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, I got best friend in, mixed in there. Whoa. <laughs> Eli. This is extended, extended Valentine's Day, I think we're, we're experiencing here. Uh, so I do want to get back to some of these mentors because I know, Mario, you, know, you obviously grew up in a, a family where food was a priority, but you said at USC, when you were there, you had a professor there that kind of helped inspire you as well. Yeah. Look, there's so many teachers, particularly Harvard Westlake. I, you know, I've, I've seen this, this sense of not just necessarily teaching a curriculum, right, but actually having the students think for themselves, you know, truly become independent thinkers. And if anything, challenge them to think outside of the curriculum. There was an unbelievably well-touted professor that USC had recruited back in the early, early 90s. I don't want to fully date myself, but let's just say 91. And his name was Dr. Lammy. He's still there. I literally switched my major after reading about his kind of life journey at that point. And he delivered in every way. I took him, I had him as a professor at least three times through my four years truly one of the still greatest thinkers. So many people that have ever had Dr. Lammy as a, uh, as a professor will speak his praises because he is one of those people that will push you to be the best version of yourself. And, um, and still to this day, that critical thinking, that analysis, I apply it all the time. An influence might be an understatement. Mm. You know, he definitely took something that was a bit of a dirty rock 
and put a lot of pressure on it, I would say. I don't think I came out diamonds, but he he put some damn pressure on it and, and did it in a um, in a way that uh, that I could only appreciate now. And maybe it's at times I didn't appreciate. One thing, though, that Ellen and I had, have always you know talked about is in this kind of second chapter of our lives, we've had a lot of opportunity to seek out mentorship. And maybe this is, you know, some advice for students. Maybe this is some advice for, you know, anyone that is has a startup or you know, even a mature business. But I think one of the biggest failures in seeking out mentorship, you know, first of all, you're putting yourself out there and you're asking someone to mentor you. But I was going to offer two uh, areas of advice. One, do your homework. Like know what what they've done great. Know what they're successful about. Know what they where they have an expertise. And then ask specific questions around that. It does multiple things, right? One, it ingratiates you that, that you've done your homework, right? But it also, is, you're going to get better answers because <laughs> it's areas in which they, they can geek on. They're absolute nerds. They're thought leaders in that space. And you can uncover that, right? And then the second thing that we see with so many mentors seeking out mentorship is this, all they want to do is just confirm it's almost like if you go to the teacher and go, hey, I, I want to show you my paper. I really think it's the best paper I've ever written. Let me tell you all the reasons why this is the best paper. And then this very thoughtful teacher at Harvard Westlake gives some insights and some, um, some things, and they're not hearing any of that. They did not show up to listen. They showed up to be validated that everything they were doing was great. Hmm. And the ability to really listen, to really humble yourself and stay open to new ideas. Because admittedly, you know, we had a mentor in this gentleman, Tom Sims, who was the founder of Mimi's Cafe. Mendocino Farms was absolutely an urban concept, only Monday through Friday, only lunch only. And we were convinced that we were just going to grow at the base of skyscrapers in central business districts all across the country. That was our game plan. And he forced us to think about suburbia. In fact, now we have 35 restaurants. Only five are in central business districts. The other 30 are in suburbia. And, and suburbia has unlocked so much success for the business. Had we argued with Tom at that moment and not listened to the feedback that we had asked for, we would have never built the business that we pivoted to because of him. You know, so there's there's moments like that that's that's kind of a good example, but I think it speaks to the student showing up to the teacher <laughs> asking for some mentorship, right? Absolutely. But Ellen, I know you also talked about, in terms of mentorship, how it's been a little bit more difficult for you, mm-hmm. particularly as a woman, maybe a woman of color, to find mentors in the same way it would be for someone else. So if you wouldn't mind kind of talking about that challenge, but then also you mentioned there was one mentor, a yeah. female mentor yeah. that had a, a massive impact on you and your yeah. professional life. Yeah, and I I don't want to blame it all on that, right? But I've had a lot of years to reflect and kind of look through all the relationships I've had. Being in a very male-dominated industry, it was harder and less comfortable, as I was talking about. You just have to keep chipping away at it. I think, you know, one of the hard things, too, is it's a blessing and a curse. I was married to my husband, who, again, when you have a male and female relationship and you have a bunch of male men out there, the, the dynamic is going to shift towards men and men, right? Because they have more in common. They talk about golf. They talk about sports. You know, when you're in a boardroom and you're the only female, people are talking about other things and you're worried about how your kids are doing. The, the, the relationship is just, it, it's a different dynamic. 
But I was very blessed when we were first starting out, and this was prior to Mendocino Farms, we had another restaurant that we were partners in. We happened to go and interview a uh, accounting firm in West LA, and they happened to be the premier restaurant accounting firm. Everyone says, if you're going to scale, this is the person, this is the group you want to go talk to. And I remember Mari and I walking into, it was on Wilshire, this beautiful, you know, back then we'd we were like, I call it slinging teriyaki, right? What did we know? We were in our 20s into this beautiful high rise. And uh, we're like, we can't afford this, Mario. Like, what are we doing here? I'm so uncomfortable, right? And here comes this female partner. Her name was Dee Stein. And she literally, it was like a, I mean, she was like five feet tall, but with six feet full of energy and power going, okay, guys, what do you need? What do you want? You know, we explained to them, hey, look, we're looking to scale this business. We don't know how to really do it from a financial accounting standpoint. So here we are. Can you help us? And my thought was in helping meant, can you do this and can we pay for it? And I remember she, you know, we talked to her about our business and she looked at me and she goes, Ellen, I'm not doing this for you. I won't even take your money. You are going to do this yourself and I'm going to teach it to you. I'm not going to make as much. But if you can understand the foundation of what this looks like, you know, your P&L, your financials, you're going to really be able to understand how to scale and grow a business. I remember I was so overwhelmed by that. I was like, no, I don't mind. We will pay you. And she goes, I'm not doing it for you. And wow. I will say from that day forward, she spent so much time in helping me and kind of just mentoring me on how how to just use QuickBooks. I know, let's just start with that. But looking at the numbers and she would check in on me every month for the first couple of years of business. Then we transitioned to Mendo. And as we were growing that, she, same thing, would check in on me and you know, ask me, are you doing okay? Let's look at your PL. Let's talk through this. And it was amazing that someone invest that time in me. And I will have to credit the success of Mendo on her helping me look at the business through those eyes and really wanting to understand something that I didn't want to really do. And you know, she was fantastic. She did this all the way through um, until she passed away. She was going through chemo because she passed away from brain cancer. And I still remember she was in between treatments. And the last call was like, are you still doing okay? And I remember telling her, don't worry about me. How are you doing? You know, and it, it she, yeah, it was just, she was an amazing person. Wow. So before we go and there are some, uh, a few kind of standard questions as part of the supporting cast. Can you talk through how the Mendocino Farms we see today started? I mean, if you still go to the original, right, down at the bottom of uh, 300 South Grand yeah, in a failed Starbucks of 800 square feet, it was basically designed to be just gourmet sandwiches. So this notion of kind of a Subway or Quiznos was not really what we wanted to put into our body. That wasn't uh, something that excited us yet. To get a good sandwich, you had to go to like a Jones on 3rd, which Joan makes some pretty good sandwiches, except for they're 12 to $14 and they're actually a little bit smaller. So if you're kind of a big dude like me, you might be two in and now you're completely upside down financially. So Ellen and I, original business plan was, can we do the quality of a full service kind of high-end cafe like Jones, but at like $10, $11. And that was the first iteration. We were one of the first places to say, hey, look, we want to use 
I'm going to call it artisan bread. I know once that Jack in the Box calls their artisan bun, the word artisan's ruined forever. Uh, <laughs> we were the first to want to actually use great bread. So we were able to find um, Eric Kaiser had just opened Bread Bar. So we were the first to actually do a sandwich shop with really, really great bread. That was one of the critical pieces. And to be true, I mean, we were open 11 to 2 o'clock Monday through Friday, and, and we would have anywhere from 60 to 80 people in line through that kind of 1130 to 130. It was, it was well embraced, but it was, it was a great value, right? You were getting a $16 sandwich for 11 bucks, basically. We evolved, though, as, uh, as the consumer kind of shared with us because we listened to our guests. By the way, we started at the creation of Yelp. <laughs> Which so we got to we got to grow up in the Yelp age from the very beginning of like what's Yelp to now we got to read it, but but I will tell you that we did listen to the guests that we believed were our core guests and that evolution allowed us and through some partnerships of kind of reaching out to other brands and one of the other brands that we we actually became sister and brother brands with was Chopped Salads out of New York, we actually added some great salads admittedly adding some great salads with the already mise en place that we had created was a huge hit. Still to this day, you know, we're called sandwich market. We sell almost 50% of all of our sales is, is salads. Uh, hmm. So we're as much a salad place as we are a sandwich place. So that was a really big evolution. And then, and then probably the two more big ones, and Ellen, if I miss any, was moving to suburbia. We did our first I'm going to call it suburban. You can't see the air quotes I'm doing, but we went to Marina Del Rey at the Caruso Project, Waterside. And that was lunch and dinner, seven days a week, tons of families. We didn't even have a kid's menu when we, as we were entering into that market. I mean, trust me, we opened with a kid's menu, but we had a great one. In, in kind of those iterations of what it is to serve the guest as well as we did in the urban setting, in the suburban setting. So admittedly, I can't believe still to this day that Ron Shake at Panera Bread didn't have us arrested because we spent so much time in Panera measuring how big their dining rooms were, how to get strollers through, how to have the, the, the size of the line queue, right? That was a big iteration. But the biggest one, actually, we owe it to the people that we went to school with um, or that our kids went to school with. It was opening in Sherman Oaks. And Ellen and I uh, were having lunch one day in the restaurant, being as critical as two co-founders could, could be as they eat lunch in the restaurant. And it really came from Ellen going like, this doesn't feel, look at all the females that are in here. This, this, our brand doesn't feel feminine enough. And that is our core customer. No, I think it's interesting because uh, females are the key decision makers, especially when it comes to what the family is going to eat and even so just to, for their partners. And so, you know, to Mario's, to what he was saying from a design perspective, we realized Sherman Oaks is this very kind of darker gastro pubby look and feel because that kind of matched the demo that started in downtown. Cause it was a bunch of, you know, and I hate to say a bunch of men in suits who came to eat at Mendo more than women. And so we really tried to kind of lighten and brighten from a design perspective, created more family friendly areas so that on the weekends, you know, you felt like this is a place where you could come and bring your kids and you can enjoy a glass of wine while your kids ran around. You go to Studio City now, there's like, 
an area where it's completely, I call it fenced in so that it's safe for the kids to go play. And as a parent, you feel comfortable in letting them do that and they can make as much noise as possible. From a marketing branding perspective, how we spoke to our guests, you know, we broadened kind of how we spoke to them so that it wasn't just targeting one kind of demo. And then to Mario's point, bringing in salads was huge because now, you know, you could be healthier at lunch, you could have a decadent dinner, or you could treat yourself on the weekend. Women, you know, and I don't want to stereotype because men actually eat a lot of salads too. But, you know, way back when, it was this idea of being healthier and these Lululemon soccer moms wanting to come and hang out at our place. And so that really was the eye-opening moment opening up in Sherman Oaks. And we've incorporated that in every design and the food elements, marketing, branding, now even going forward. So that really was an aha moment at Sherman Oaks. And yeah, and the one near uh, near where I live is definitely that way. There's a place for, I have a two-year-old daughter and oh, yeah. you know she can hang out in that area. There's a kid's menu that she enjoys, whether my wife and I want a salad or a sandwich. Eli, I think that if anything that Ellen and I hope, you know, with the legacy of Mendocino Farms was, you know, it was never about like how many can we open uh, or even the money. It was about can we partner with landlords and create great neighborhood gathering places? I will tell you that your Brentwood store, we had to work with the Anderson family and it was quite an act of God. We spent hundreds of thousands more to get that patio licensed through the city to be able to get all those things. But at the end of the day, the ROI for us is, is can we be that neighborhood gathering place? Um, can we put in those, you know, those things that will help encourage that? And I think that that, that particular store, you know, and we have we could tell that story a few times, right? Really is the thing that is most meaningful to Ellen and I is the fact that you and your family get to enjoy and that we get to sell you happy. Yeah. And this was on the corner, just for those listening, this is on the corner of sort of Montana and San Vicente. And it was, there's a Bank of America. And there was not a lot of life to that area. And I think there, to your credit, there is now. There's that outdoor space that's been built. There's a lot of activity uh, around that restaurant. Across the street now, you have an Alfred Coffee and you have a Joe and the Juice. There's just more activity to that whole, sure. whole neighborhood now. So... Before we go, uh, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to LA. We are known for our movies, our food, of course, and our climate. So first question is, I guess for each of you, what is your favorite movie? I'll, I'll go with A Few Good Men for multiple reasons. One that's uh, kind of funny, that's an inside thing that um, Ellen is snickering that I picked it. You know, there's that moment where um, Jack Nicholson has an absolute breakdown and totally reveals that. Tom Cruise's character can't handle the truth. And I think entrepreneur, as much as he is the antagonist, you know, in that story, I think that there was so much truth that was spoken, you know, to the things that are done behind the scenes and how much it takes to do certain things. And I oddly, while so many people rooted for Tom Cruise, leaned into Nicholson's character and was like, wow, you know... <laughs> He really, while I don't agree with the methods, I totally get the pressure to try to like protect us and do the right thing. So no, I'm not ordering uh, people to be killed in their uh, barracks. But uh, I believe it's I believe it's called a code red. Right? It's code red. Thank yeah. you. Solid, solid. So anyway, look, few good men, great flick. You can't actually catch it midstream and not just stay on it. It's it's you don't go over it. It's sticky. It's a sticky movie. 
I totally agree. I love that movie. There's a great podcast called The Rewatchables, by the way, which okay. they go back and they rewatch great movies and they talk about the movie. And the A Few Good Men episode of The Rewatchables for any podcast fans oh, yeah. out there is fantastic. If you know the movie as well as I bet you do and, and I do. What about you, Ellen? That is a really great movie. I love that movie. Mine is a little bit lighter and there's it's not as intense and there's not like a deep storyline. I actually love Princess Bride. It's just a beautiful love story. And I think it's a it's a story for all ages. We've been still trying to get our kids to come watch it. But for some weird reason, I, I can't seem to hook them in. But that just I, I love that story. And I love that movie. All right. Next question. What is your maybe as a couple, what's your favorite meal in LA? Like, where do you guys like to go when it's a special occasion or maybe with your family? What's sort of... It's hard. It's really hard because it really depends on how we feel. I know that sounds really strange because we love all kinds of foods. So depending on how we feel, I think there's a restaurant for a certain time. What's your top three? Well, we love Casilla. Casilla is amazing. It's in Santa Monica. Our kids love sushi. So Sugarfish has been a huge favorite during the pandemic. It's amazing prior to the pandemic. It's amazing during the pandemic. Go Italian. What's your favorite Italian? Because I know what it is. El Pastillo. Oh, we do love El Pastillo. It's also a Harvard Westlake family. Drago. Yep. We love El Pastillo. The pasta with the cheese and the wheel with the truffles. Amazing. I mean, there's so many good restaurants. It's it's so hard. You're talking to people who love to eat out. Those are great choices, by the way. Casilla, Sugarfish, and Il Pastel are all great choices. And then if you're going to get a great sandwich or a great salad in Venice, Giusta, probably the best, some of the best sandwiches. And then if, if you're really going to get a great one, which was uh, two chefs that worked with Mendo years ago, fine dining guys, Bloodsoe's now has a pop-up inside it called Ugly Drum. And if you want the best house-smoked pastrami sandwich, Oof. right? This is not processed. This is not chemicals. This is like homemade house-smoked pastrami sandwich made like God intended it. Then it's Ugly Drum. What's your favorite place in LA? Could be a part of town or it could be a street or a specific location. Maybe I'll say as a family. This is the sad part. We're so boring because our lives have been so focused on building Mendo that any outside activities, people are like, so what do you guys do for your free time? The Harvard Westlake basketball courts is, is our favorite place. We to spend go. a lot of time on the basketball courts and the volleyball courts, you know, but LA really does have so many beautiful things to offer. I actually love the beach, whether it be Malibu or down in the South Bay. You know, sometimes when I, and Mario might not even know this, sometimes when I just have time for an hour or two, I'll just drive down there and just sit and just be by the ocean. I went to UC San Diego and lived in Del Mar. I mean, we're so lucky that we have actually beach, you know, mountains and everywhere around us. So I love the beach. Last question. Uh, As I mentioned, I have a two-year-old. You guys are parents. The last question I'm asking everyone is, what is your best parenting advice? Uh, I've had to learn this in the last couple of years, and I've seen such a huge change in both my kids by doing this, is telling them that it's okay to fail and letting them do things on their own. I, I know as a parent, we struggle because we want our kids to be happy. We want them to excel and do well. And the best way is to be there like helicoptering around them. And I've really had to learn, like, and it's been 
really interesting to see both my kids grow by letting them do things on their own and letting them fail and learning from those failures. And that's a hard one, especially at Harvard Westlake. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, this last year, especially during the pandemic, I've let both kids just kind of do their own thing. I'm here to support them. And I think Mario is there too. But honestly, like they get more out of, I think, learning from failure than learning from applause and that everything is great and you win a medal for everything that you do, no matter what. Yeah. And I imagine it, the same could be applied to a restaurant, right? <laughs> you learn by making some mistakes and adjusting and figuring things out. And Yeah. And it's uh, amazing how much more when they feel empowered to be able to take care of themselves, how much more they can actually get from that. All right, look, Ellen and I are both wound pretty tight. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we both constantly try to impart to them, you know, this notion of what you do in the dark puts you in the light. You don't just show up and excel on a test. You don't just show up and excel in a game. You've got to put in the hard work and you've got to have some discipline built around it. Um, you can have fun in the process, but showing up doesn't get you a trophy. You need to actually put in that hard work. You need to bring your team along with you. And it's going to come off like, whoa, get, you know, get Mario away from my kid. Uh, but, you know, I, I truly believe that uh, so many people, you know, are being raised in a way that things are just going to come easy to them. And um, it's not the case. Um, but how do you do it in a kind, gentle way that's supportive and caring and supportive and, and loving, right? And I think that's, that's the balance. Well, thank you so much, Mario and Ellen, for sharing your story, um, a bit about your marriage. <laughs> <laughs> a bit about how to raise kids, a bit about food. Really appreciated the conversation and thank you for joining the supporting cast. Thank you.